Amen. Thank you, Gary, for the song tonight. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and we'll turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If some of you are a little bit confused about the title of the message tonight, maybe you aren't uh, familiar with working with computers or different types of media, but almost always in the documentation and the uh, instructions, there's a, they, uh, a section that's the, called the FAQs, or the facts, the, that stands for Frequently Asked Questions. And this evening, as we talk about uh, Nehemiah and his attempts to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, uh, I want to consider the devil's frequently asked questions. See, whenever you attempt to do something for God, the devil is always there whispering in your ear, and he's asking you questions. Why? Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to put yourself through it? What do you ever hope to accomplish? Look how hard it's going to be. And so the devil's always there trying to sow seeds of doubt. And that's because the devil knows that he can't take a Christian's salvation away from him. He can't take his soul. And so what he's going to do is, to his best of his ability, he will try to discourage God's people. And he'll try to stop us from doing our work before we can ever get started. Now, if I could retitle the message tonight, and if we were to put a title to Nehemiah chapter 4, we could call it the chapter of opposition. And great opposition arose when Nehemiah began to build the wall. Now, we're going to look at just a few verses of this fourth chapter this evening. So if you'll stand with me, please. We're going to read uh, the first verse through down through the sixth verse of Nehemiah chapter 4. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they re- revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burnt? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Nehemiah begins to speak here in verse number 4. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall, and the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask you that you uh, just bless us as we learn something from your word. Show us some things that you'd you'd have us to know, Lord, and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Let's get our bearings just a little bit before we get into the heart of the message tonight. It's been uh, now three weeks since I preached the last message from Nehemiah, and so you might be wondering just where are we in this story or, or what has already taken place. Well, chapter 1 began with the sad news that Nehemiah received from his brethren who were in Jerusalem that the city walls of Jerusalem remained broken down and that the people there were in great affliction. Now, Nehemiah was in Persia, 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem, and when he heard the news of what his uh, people were going through, his heart was broken. And so he began to pray, and for four months he prayed that somehow, some way, God would work on the king's heart who would allow him to go back to Jerusalem and to help his people rebuild the walls. Well, Nehemiah 
uh, had his request granted. God graciously allowed him to go. He opened up the king's heart, and uh, the king gave permission for Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem. But not only did the God do that for him, but God also impressed upon the king that he would give letters to all the governors of the region that they would allow Nehemiah to complete his work. So Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, and he wasn't really aware when he arrived there just how terrible the devastation of the wall was. He'd never been to Jerusalem before. He'd never seen what had happened. And when he got there, he found an almost impossible situation. The walls were indeed broken down, much worse than he imagined. The people were very few to help him. They were discouraged. The stones that were were heavy to put back up on the wall, the wall was long. And all of that contributed to a very dismal picture for rebuilding the wall. But Nehemiah was still determined that he would do that because he believed that his God was bigger than any problem that he might face. And so once again, he began to pray. He began to encourage the people. And then he put himself right into the middle of the work to help them. And then God started to give them progress. And when the wall began to go up and the people were prospering, that's when opposition reared its ugly head and tried to stop it. Now that brings us to where we are in the story tonight. The wall building is going on. The wall is going up. But Satan is busy trying to destroy the confidence of the people. Now before we go on this evening, I want to remind everyone of what this wall stands for. This wall stands for people who are on God's side. When there is no wall, that means that the people have no doctrine, they have no truth, they don't really care. And so without a wall, that's a picture of people who are following the devil and the ways of the world. So the devil, whenever we try to do something for God, he comes with his frequently asked questions. And there's something peculiar about the devil's questions, and that is he really doesn't want to know the answers. He doesn't care what answer you're going to give to the question. All he's trying to do is just put the doubt in your mind. He wants you to think about them. And so that's really all that he cares about. Now, let's look at some questions that the devil asks. And we see this uh, borne out in in the passage that we read tonight. First of all, the devil may ask this question. Are you fit for the work? That is, do you have the actual spiritual stamina that it takes to do what God tells you to do? Now, I would submit to you this evening that these people did have what it took to do God's work because they began to prosper. They actually began to build this wall, and when the wall began to go up, that's when the opposition came. You see, the opposition comes when success is evident, not when your failure is apparent. And so when you start doing things for God, you can expect that Satan will be there. Now, verse number one of our text says, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. So when the opposition heard that something was going on, their ears perked up, and their anger was kindled against these Jews. And whatever it was that these Jews were trying to accomplish, they were dead set against it, and they were going to stop it. Now, that's the way that it works. Nobody is going to pay attention to us until something breaks out here. Until we start actually doing something, when we get busy in God's work, when there's activity going on, when lives are being changed, that's when we become a distraction to the world. And that's when the world will oppose us. But that won't happen until God's people start to make the noise of actually doing something. Now, there are churches all over Runnard Park and all over Santa Rosa area that probably you've never heard anything at all about. You may not even know that they exist. 
And when there are churches like that, uh, when people don't know something about them, then probably those churches aren't doing very much. But I would have to say that if you go into the neighborhoods of Ronard Park and you talk to people around here, oh, they've heard of Berean Baptist Church. Most of the time, they're very much opposed to us. They don't like the fact that our school is in their neighborhood. Some of them don't like the, the sign that we put out front, the messages that are on the signs. And we had calls about that, that they don't appreciate that. Every now and then we get a call from someone who says, I don't like the fact that somebody stuck a track on my door. And so people around here very definitely have an opinion about us. And they think that this church is a very peculiar church. And so sometimes they'll rise up and oppose us. And certainly we know that our work is being effective when you have churches that will come all the way from out of town right into our neighborhood and pass out tracts trying to get people from coming to our church. You ever wonder why they would do that? Well, if we're not doing very much at all, why would they want to do that if nobody's coming anyway? So when we start to cause a disturbance, when we, when we act like we're doing something, we start to do something for God, that's when we're going to have the opposition. And that's when the devil comes with his snide remarks and he asks you, are you really fit to do this work? Can you handle what God wants you to do? And the devil tries to convince you otherwise. Now, first of all, he may say, just like he did here, that your strength is underwhelming. And your ability to do what you're trying to do is practically non-existent. Now, what happens here is that in verse number 1, Sanballat, who is the governor of the Samaritans, became incensed over this building attempt. You see, he's, he's the, the head guy of the territory. I mean, he's, he's the one that's used to being in control of the area. And anything that goes on in his territory becomes a threat to his power and his prestige. Now, the problem is that Jerusalem was a city that lay on the trade routes of that area. And since the walls had been broken down and no one was really inhabiting the city any longer, Jerusalem fell off the map, you might say, as far as trading was concerned. So when those walls start to go back up again, then the trade switches back. It goes away from Samaria where it had been diverted, and now it comes back to Jerusalem. And so Sanballat was angry about that. So he rode up to the walls and he speaks to the workmen there and he begins to cry out to them, What do these feeble Jews... You are feeble. You don't have it in you to complete this wall. And he was concerned about it because actually what he saw was the ability to do something. These people were busy. They're working. Progress is being made. And so the strength of these people following their God was not as underwhelming as he assumed. Now that reminds me of a story that we read in the book of Acts when we were studying through, uh, through that book in Acts chapter 19. Remember, you know, uh, the Old Testament always has New Testament connections, so you can learn something from the Old Testament that applies to the New. But we see a very similar thing happening in in Acts chapter 19, and that's when Paul went to preach in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a very idolatrous city, and one of the things that they did, the silversmiths in the city had a great business going on of making these little idols and trinkets of the goddess Diana. And they made all these little trinkets about with, uh, of the temple of Diana that was in Ephesus. Well, when Paul started preaching there, the people got saved. Many people were saved. And so they began to abandon their idol worship. And when they did, the trade of the city became affected by that. And it didn't make any difference how many people got saved, how many people got right with God, and and, and how many people lost their foolish superstitions. It was affecting the trade of the city. And the economy, that was the most important thing for these silversmiths. 
Well, this is not part of my message tonight, but sometimes that's what's happened in America, isn't it? It's what's happened to us, is that we're so concerned about the economy that we'll buy just about anything. Now, I'm not using a double entendre there. I don't mean just buy anything. I mean, speaking, we'll, we'll, we'll just take anything as long as it keeps our economy going. We don't care what it is. Well, that's what they did in Ephesus. So these silversmiths got together, and they tried to stop Paul from preaching. And they even incensed a riot against him to get him to stop. Now, that's what we see going on, in here, going on here in Nehemiah. The Samaritan governor, Sanballat, and his sidekick, Tobiah the Ammonite, they oppose the work of God, and every bit of discouragement they could use, they used it against them. And so they came to the Jews, and they said, You're feeble. Your strength is underwhelming. You're going to quit. You'll quit doing this. Now, little did they know, though, that they were playing right into God's hands. Because, you see, God doesn't need... 2,000 Samsons to build his wall. In fact, God takes the weakest vessels and uses those to do his work. And why does God do that? Because God wants to receive all the glory. God's well capable. So God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So when this is all over, Sanballat and Tobiah, they'll step back and they'll scratch their heads and they'll wonder, how did those feeble Jews actually rebuild the wall? It's impossible. It couldn't have been done. But there's nothing impossible when it comes to doing God's work. When God's people are faithful and they're determined to do God's work, all things can be done. So Sanballat then, he's still doing the devil's work, and so he comes with another accusation. And he says to them, the size of this task is overwhelming. The job is just too big. Now the task that they have is to build a wall two to two and a half miles long. Massive stones have fallen way down into the valleys and they have to transport those stones back up and put them on top of the wall. Some of the wall traversed terrain that was very rocky. There were cliffs, bluffs, and scaffolding those areas trying to get those stones back up was was a very difficult thing to do. And the people that Nehemiah was working with are not wall builders. These aren't people who are trained to do things like this. Originally, when the walls of Jerusalem were built, they had many workers. They were strong. They were talented. They knew what they were doing. So how are these feeble Jews, as Sanballat looks looks at it, how are they going to get those stones out of the valley back on the top of the wall? Well, don't think that those things weren't already going on in the people's minds, because they were. Nehemiah confronted that in the very beginning. How are you going to stir people up to do an impossible job? Well, I think back on the last sermon that I preached, if you were here, I preached on the gates in the city, and the title of the message was The Gateway to God. And every gate in that city spoke in some way, somehow, about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Nehemiah did was to rekindle their hope in God. Now, whose city is this? This is the great city of David. And one day, the king of kings is going to inhabit this city. And so he rekindled their thoughts about about Jesus Christ, about the Messiah coming, about God inhabiting the city. Now, I want you to think for just a moment beyond the first coming of Christ. Of course, we know that Christ came into Jerusalem. We read about that in the book of John. Uh, He came in riding on that little donkey. And when Christ came into Jerusalem, he came there for the purpose of dying. And over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, it tells us that that's what Christ came to do. The lambs that were slain, that was all a picture that Jesus would die. 
But in the Old Testament, we also have prophecy that concerns the second coming of Christ. Some of the prophecies actually look beyond the first coming and go to the second advent. And the second advent of Christ is going to be far different from the first one. Because when Jesus comes back, he's not coming to die. He's coming to establish himself as a conquering king. And one of the things that Jesus will do is he'll come to the city of Jerusalem. He'll sit on the throne of David. And for 1,000 years, Jesus will rule and reign from there in perfect peace and righteousness. Now, if you can find the book of Zechariah, this is towards the end of the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn there. And I want to read you a prophecy, one of these prophecies in the Old Testament that completely skips over the first coming of Christ, and it goes right to the second advent. This is in uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. And you may remember this, that in our timeline, Zechariah actually lived about the same time as Nehemiah. But in Zechariah chapter 14, verse number 8, it says, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter it it shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. And all the land shall be as a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate under the place of the first gate, under the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel under the king's wine presses. And you might remember we read all about those different things when we were studying the gates. Verse 11, And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now, here is the reason why that Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that is the king of kings and the Lord of lords is coming to inhabit the city. So the devil may discourage us. The devil may mock us and he say, what fools you are. There is no Christ. Christ is not coming back. Why do you believe such a foolish thing? Peter tells us that in the New Testament that we will face those who will mock the coming of Christ. And they'll say to us, you foolish Christians, Jesus is not coming back. I mean, you just think about it. How long has it been since Jesus was here the first time? He's not coming back. The resurrection, that's all a farce. There is no such thing as the resurrection of Christ. Well, now let's go to the New Testament for just a minute. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, Peter, or rather, uh, Sanballat is tossing out all of these accusations. He's using that to discourage the people. He tells them, you can't do this. Your God can't do this. And if you ever hope that this king that you think is coming is coming, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. But let's look what Peter says. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 3. He writes and says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust." And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Let me stop there for just a moment and tell you what's ha- what he's talking about here. First of all, he talks about the flood coming. 
and the flood overwhelmed the entire world. But now God has preserved the world not to be destroyed by a flood any longer. That's why God gave the rainbow, if you remember that. He's not going to destroy the world by flood any longer, but he will destroy it by fire. And so Peter says, But beloved, in verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So nobody had better ever make a mistake of thinking that Jesus is not coming back. Those who mock him and say he won't return will be caught in this great conflagration and they'll spend eternity in the fires of hell. The king of kings is coming to reign. He's coming to reign and you better be on his side, be a part of his kingdom rather than being one of his enemies. So Nehemiah is building this wall because the king of kings is coming. Now here's the third accusation that's made. The sacrifice is useless. Now, back in our text verses in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 2, Sanballat says, will they sacrifice? And there's a lot of discussion about that phrase. What's the intent of this? What does it really mean? But rather than, will they sacrifice? And that leads us to believe that he's talking about an actual sacrifice. Really, the word should, should be better interpreted. Will they pray the wall up? Will they pray this wall up? Now, how ridiculous is that? Praying the wall up? Prayer is useless. I mean, prayer is for people with feeble minds and psychosomatic reactions who think that it does good when it really doesn't. And that's what Satan wants you to think. I mean, do you, do you think that Satan is overjoyed because we meet here every week with a prayer page? And we begin to pray over people. We have prayer time. And week after week, we do see prayers that are answered. But what does Satan say to us when we look at the prayer page? Well, he says, look how long those names have been there. And some of them have been there a long time. Look how long the names have been there. God's not doing anything. And if anything does happen, it's purely a coincidence. You know, when people say things like that, I think about something that Hazel told me just a, just a couple of weeks ago. When she came in, uh, we'd been praying for her because she wasn't feeling well. You know what she told me? She said, I felt myself getting stronger because my church was praying. Why do people so often tell us things like that? It's because God performs. God hears. God listens when we pray. Will they pray the wall up? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, they will. And when the devil comes and says to you, are you fit for this work? You say, by God Almighty, I am fit. First Chronicles says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might. In thine hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. 
Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. So when you have a wall to build, the best thing to do is just go talk to the master builder. He's the one who knows all about building walls. Now here's the second FAQ, frequently asked question from Satan. Is your faith too weak? Now here's where things start to get a little bit sticky. What about your faith? Why would the devil ask that question? Well, this is where the devil knows more about you than you really want him to know. You see, the devil watches us. And the devil sees our failures. He knows the times that we're weak in the faith. And he's all too keen to remind us of all those times that we were weak. Now, if we look at the situation here, Judah had attempted, uh, attempted to rebuild the walls on other occasions. And the whole reason why that the wall needs to be rebuilt is because of this foray into idolatry that the children of Israel had committed. And so the reason that they lost the city of Jerusalem was lack of faith. They lost the walls because of lack of faith, and they lost their temple because of lack of faith. Now, of course, Zerubbabel came along, and he revived the people. The temple was rebuilt, but then the people fell back into idolatry again. And just a few years later, Ezra had to come, and Ezra had to revive the temple worship. But they fell back into it again. And so here comes Nehemiah, and he has to help rebuild the walls. Well, all along through this whole thing, there are lapses of faith. And of course, if you've been a Christian for very long, you have experienced lapses of faith. Now, God already knows that you're going to fall into those times. And so that's why Jesus is always standing by, praying for us, interceding for us. And he's asking God to help us so that our faith does not fail. You remember, that's what happened with Simon Peter. His faith appeared to fail, but it was just a temporary failure. And Jesus said that he prayed for him that his faith would not ultimately fail. And of course, if you're a child of God, that will come true for you. Your faith will not ultimately fail. And so what happened with Peter was that after he denied the Lord three times, Peter turned around and became a bold spokesman for Christ. Even when Peter was thrown in prison, he still preached about Christ. Then eventually, in the end of his life, tradition says that Peter also was crucified. And they say that uh, Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 37, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. So what is it that the devil say, it says to you when he comes to examine your faith and he catches you in one of those weak moments? Well, here's what he may say to you. He may say that your determination is suspect. The devil comes and he says, you haven't really proved that you can finish anything. He says, you're up and down in your faith. You're in and out of your faith. You just really don't have the determination that it takes to do this job. And you know, the sad truth of the matter is that many times... Too many times, Satan is right about that. His accusations are correct. People promise things and they never come through. They say, well, I'll be faithful at church. I promise you. And then they fizzle out after a little while. I'll be there for choir practice. I'll be on time. I'll be there for Pioneer Club. I'll be there, Pastor. You just call on me. You can depend on me. I'll be there. You know what faithfulness is? Faithfulness is not attending three services and then missing two. And then attending four services and missing three. 
what I think faithfulness is, is when you are going to be absent from your church that you're a member of, that people know why you're not here. And you ought to have a pretty good excuse for not being in God's house. Now, you know, there's some folks who come into my office and they say to me, Pastor, I'd really love to be involved in ministry. Is there some job that I can do? Or I'll take on this job. And I'm courteous. I mean, I'm polite. I listen to people when they come. But then I also look at the track record. And many times I've heard lots of promises, lots of things they say that they'll do, but there is no follow-through to it. You may remember that I quoted from Matthew Henry just a few weeks ago. He said, better never to start than to start and not to finish. Now, can you imagine what an unfinished wall would say about God and his people? What does an unfinished wall say? Well, they've lost their determination. Now, when you've got a wall that's half finished, stones are out of place, that's a monstrosity. And so people look at that and they say, what God is that? What God do they serve? Who are those people? Who is their God? And I'll tell you that your lack of determination speaks very badly about your God. Then also, in your weak moments, Satan will say to you, your discouragement is sure. Hey, man, the devil says, you know, I know who you are. You are a defeatist. I can whip you around any time that I want to do it. And you know that's true. When we have confidence in ourselves, you can rest assured the devil can whip you any time. Here's what people don't understand. You can't do the Lord's work like being the manager of a business. You can't do God's work like you're the head of the department. Good skills are needed to do God's work. But here's the one thing we need to understand, that the enemy that we fight against is an uncommon enemy. And you don't tackle this enemy like you do any ordinary job that you have to tackle. So the first time that you think, well, I can handle it. I'm a lean, mean, spiritual machine. That's when discouragement comes. And you find out, no, I can't handle it. Jesus said, though, about it, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I think one of the things that Jesus is saying in that statement is sit back. I mean, don't quit, but sit back and let God begin to build your faith. Read his word. Draw strength from his instructions. Satan knows your history, folks. And at every possible juncture, he'll throw your history right back up in your face. Now, thirdly, There's another FAQ from the devil. And he asks, will you follow God's will? That sounds like a question that, that God would ask. But Satan asked the question. At some point, you're going to be brought to a crossroads and a crisis of belief. And Satan will stand right there and ask you, which way are you going to go? And when he asks you that, the path that he wants you to go looks enticing. And Satan says, why do you want to go the other path? I mean, why do you want to follow God when that's hard work? Why would you ever choose to go build a wall? Why put yourself through it? That task is tedious. Don't make it so hard on yourself. And Satan says, my way is much easier than that. My my way has so much gratification. My way is fun. My way feels good. And so Satan asks you the question, which way are you going to go? Are you going to follow God's will? Now, here's what must happen when Satan asks you that question. First, your perspective must be restored. Remember who you're listening to. Now, now Satan really 
likes to remember your track record, what you need to do is remember Satan's track record. Think about what he's done. Whoever followed Satan and was better off for following him. Or even worse than that, whoever followed Satan and didn't die for following him. What does the scripture say? Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know, the scripture never tells us that there will be enjoyment that comes from sin. In Proverbs, it says, good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. And so you've got to get the perspective back. You've got to see who's in control. On one side, there's death and destruction. On the other side, there's life everlasting. And, and I would ask, I mean, what kind of weird perspective causes you to believe the devil when every time he's always lied to you? Why would you believe him? The Bible says he is the father of lies. Now, our perspective is, when we think about it, why do I want to put myself through it? Why do I want to endure all the criticism that it takes to try to follow the Lord? Why do I actually go through all the ridicule and the embarrassment? That's our perspective. But the right perspective is what we find in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but also to them that love is appearing. The right perspective is what Jesus said in Matthew 16. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And so the right perspective is when you stand at that crossroads, you say to Satan, Satan, Jesus has never failed me. And then ask him, what have you done for me lately? Then finally, when Satan comes and he says, which way will you go? Your prayers must be repeated. You can't stop praying through all of this. Now, Nehemiah, if anything else, is a book about prayer. Nehemiah got to Jerusalem on the basis of prayer. He began to build this wall on the basis of prayer. And so when the enemy comes and they start making accusations and they ask questions... What does Nehemiah do? He goes right back to prayer. Look at verse number four of our text. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Now actually, it was this kind of prayer that restored Nehemiah's perspective. The opposition is great. But Nehemiah is once again reminded of who got him there in the first place. And so one of the purposes of prayer is to calm us down and get us to thinking straight again. Get us in the right perspective. Keep praying the right prayers. Now you think about it for a moment. Who is Satan? Who is this one that's tempting you to do what you shouldn't do and to follow him? Who is he? Satan is a fallen angel. Satan... The Bible very clearly says it's going nowhere but down. He will ultimately fail and be cast into the fires of hell. He's a fallen angel. But listen to what the Bible says about other angels, holy elect angels. In Psalm chapter 91 it says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up with their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon a lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shall thou trample under feet. 
because he has set his love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Is that true? I mean, is that really the outcome? Well, every time I think about this, I I sort of have to smile because in verse number 6 of our text, Nehemiah makes a statement, just a very simple matter-of-fact statement. He says, So built we the wall. And the wall was joined together into half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Simple, wasn't it? Sanballat and Tobiah, they're out there screaming their heads off. They're opposing what Nehemiah is doing. They're trying to tear down the efforts to rebuild the wall. And Nehemiah just says... So built we the wall. So built we the wall. Folks, when the devil comes with all kinds of questions, when he puts the seeds of doubt in your mind, just go on building the wall. That's what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what we learned from your word tonight. We thank you for the strength that we receive from the Holy Spirit of God, that when we have temptations and trials when it seems so difficult to do what you want us to do, that you're always right there beside us to strengthen us. Help us to understand that better, Lord. May we keep our eyes upon you. May we trust you in all things. And we'll just give you the praise for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.